Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan. I'm joined by Timur Azhari. How are you, Timur? Hey, Nizar. Uh, I'm great this morning. You know, feels like spring weather is coming in. It's a, it's a welcome relief. Um, and I'm especially happy because we're joined this week by, by a really special guest. Uh, he is Christian Total. He is the head of the uh, history department at the University of San Joseph. Uh, Christian will be joining us in a bit, but first we're going to get to some news. It was a news-heavy week with uh, you know numbers going up and down across the board, um, and I think that it makes sense to to start with with the COVID update because this is sort of the first troubling you know se- series of events that we're that we're seeing happening almost in in slow motion. Uh, we have over the past week seen a, a steady sort of increase in the number of COVID cases in the country. Uh, Lebanon has been in a lockdown for nearly three months now. The country is now reopening. So on Monday, where you know restaurants are coming back at at fifty percent capacity, gyms at thirty percent capacity, but we're seeing cases rising. Cases are now in the mid three thousands. Uh, ICU capacity is in excess of nine hundred and fifty, which is getting pretty close to the record numbers that we saw when we went into this lockdown in January. We have between 50 and 70 people dying for day, per day, which is, you know, sort of feels unacceptable. And, and then test positivity is between 15 and 20%, which shows you that there's A, a lot of undetected spread and B, you know, a very high uh, caseload across the population. So we're clearly on an upswing here. Vaccines are picking up a little bit with more than 50,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine arriving this weekend, which I think is the largest uh, single shipment we've had so far. And we also have apparently signed an agreement for 750,000 more Pfizer vaccines. A private company has also said it's going to import a million of the Russian Sputnik vaccines. So it does seem like more doses are coming in. But at this point, we're, we're still at only around 2% of the population vaccinated. Uh, which is an incredibly small number as the case numbers are going up. And speaking of numbers going up, Nizar, I mean, this week we saw the, the Lebanese pound hit a record low against the dollar. Indeed, Timur, this week uh, the, the fluctuation of the exchange rate between the lira and the US dollar uh, were quite scary. Um, it was going up, which means the, the lira value is going down for many days, quite dramatically, uh, until it reached on Tuesday a record low of uh, 15,000 lira per dollar, right? Just to remind everyone, it was 1,500. So this is... Yeah, it's crazy. Right? So this is 10 times what it used to be. Uh, by that point, the lira had lost officially 90% of this, of its value, right? Which means that local salaries have also uh, um, lost almost 90% of their, uh, of their purchasing power in terms of uh, most products in the market. And then after Tuesday, it started going down dramatically for some reason, and uh, it reached all the way down to uh, 10,000 or 10,500. And now it's, it's stabili- not stabilizing, but now it's around 11,000, 11,500 again, which is much more reasonable than 15,000. And um, it, it, it feels like a continuation of the, of the normal kind of increasing exchange rate from before. Uh, but why right. this, this huge uh, uh, surge happened, is, is, is up to, to, um, to many explanations, right? Some people said it's after the lockdown, there's a surge in demand for dollars um, for all the institutions and companies that are resuming work. Other people said it's a much uh, more structural issue in terms of the banking system trying to pull dollars from the market to meet uh, the deadlines for the cap- recapitalization policy of the central bank or the central bank itself pulling dollars. There are many explanations. 
possible explanations for this uh, for this phenomenon. But what happened for sure is that everyone uh, felt that it was an apocalyptic moment, right? Because suddenly yeah. um, people it went from ten thousand to fifteen thousand in a couple of days. So basically, you lost half of your uh, the value of your salary in a, almost half in a day. It fueled all the uncertainty that already existed, all the fear already existed. Yeah, and and we we did see protests across the country. I mean, there have been, there have basically been protests and road blockages in Lebanon for several weeks now because the currency has been declining, and there's basically no reason for it to to stay to stabilize or for the lira to gain you know gain value because there's just no confidence in in Lebanon in the politicians to to you know to create any solution first of all to the destroyed financial system we have to the economic crisis, um, and 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 then and and you know and that's where you see this the this incredible de- decline of the Lebanese pound, where basically the minimum wage in Lebanon of six hundred and seventy-five thousand is worth fifty dollars. I mean, just imagine you're you're working, you know, an entire month. Many people are um, only to earn fifty bucks, and and so a, a major reason there, you know, whether it is this post-lockdown surge or the or the central bank re- recapitalization policy, I'd say that the overarching reason seems to be that there's no confidence in in politicians to come up with a solution and we kind of saw you know the, a, a continuation of that this week with uh, the prime minister designate and the and the president sort of sparring over whose fault it is that a cabinet isn't being formed and uh, and so uh, just before the weekend they uh, they had the basically called on each other to resign effectively if they couldn't form a government. It started with Michel Aoun. Uh, he gave a speech where he was saying that it's up to Hadidi to form the government, basically blaming the the lack of government formation on Hadidi, uh, not, not sort of uh, taking into consideration the sectarian quota sharing in the country. Uh, and then Hadidi responding that uh, Aoun, Aoun should uh, reveal the real reasons why the cabinet isn't being formed or call for early presidential elections, which would basically mean that Aoun is out of office. The next day, uh, Hadidi actually went up to meet the president. And after the meeting, he said there's, quote, an opportunity um, and they will meet again on Monday. But as as we are looking at that Monday meeting now, uh, there's really few reasons to believe that the the outstanding issues will be solved, which is basically that Hadidi wants to form a government that doesn't give the Free Patriotic Movement, President Michel Aoun's party, a veto power in the government, which is a blocking third, while the, the president obviously wants that. And up till now, every each side seems to be sticking to their guns. And meanwhile, we're basically seeing the 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 country fall apart uh, and and what you know analysts and journalists and all kinds of people for the past several you know years and it feels now at least 18 months have been pointing to the moment where subsidies are lifted as sort of a pivotal moment because that's where you see people's you know people rely on fuel medicine and wheat to be given to them at sort of a reasonable price right and once that changes then then people you know then we expect to see whether it be unrest or you know just massive expressions of public anger and this week we got many more indications that subsidies will soon be lifted and indeed are being lifted indeed i mean the the lifting of subsidies in lebanon has tremendous effect because many basic goods are subsidized to one extent or another and when you lift off subsidies that's the uh, the point where you're really floating the currency, right? Because there's no, uh, if you look at, uh, at the Lebanese economy now, the lira is not really uh, pegged to the dollar anymore. 
However, there is no real like a clear policy of floating the currency. So what we're in is in this uh, gray area where basically for the money in the bank, uh, the value is different from the money in your hand. And also like some products are subsidized, others are not. And it's not clear really what the, the real value of wages are. Right. However, when you lift off subsidies, this means that people will pay full price full price as if they are paying dollars for many uh, for many basic products such as fuel uh, and perhaps soon electricity and bread etc and so this is why it's such a pivotal moment as you said and this week we saw uh, like confirmations from officials that this is going to happen very soon uh, they have said that subsidies uh, on some products like fuel and that's a quote will end by the end of March. The finance minister talked to Bloomberg um, and said that subsidies will be lifted partially on some goods in the food basket and fuel comes next. And, you know, many other kind of uh, little statements uh, uh, that that point us in this direction. But fuel prices are already going up, uh, which basically uh, leads everything else to become more expensive because, you know, to, to go around with the lack of public transportation, this means much more, uh, much higher cost of transportation for everyone. But also fuel is basically uh, uh, what what uh, what keeps the economy going under the, the current energy system. So this will have uh, really a huge effect if the, the subsidies are lifted off completely. And the reason that all of this is basically happening is that the country is running out of hard currency, the dollars in the central bank that we can use to spend on these various different things like you know wheat, like fuel, like medicine, that money is running out. And that money is basically the people's money. And what we saw this week is confirmation that the mandatory reserves in the central bank, this is what, what the central bank uh, sees as the, the minimum amount of hard currency that it needs to have present. The, the central bank governor has apparently decided that it, it's no longer 17 billion, it is rather 15 billion. And that number has been revised down, which basically means that there's an extra 2 billion that can be used to fund various things, be it, you know, fuel for the power plants or wheat or other forms of subsidies. What this is, though, is a further indication that the state's finances are running out and that we're really coming down to the wire here. Because once that money is gone, then you're in a situation where you don't have hard currency anymore. And that means that you basically can't afford anything. You can't buy uh, fuel. You can't buy wheat. You can't buy certain medicines at the at the official rate of 1,500, which basically means that it's a free for all. Every everybody has to buy the, those, those goods at the market price, which is you know we saw go up to 15,000 lira, and it's sort of unimaginable, unimaginable to to think that the average Lebanese person today in a country where the poverty is over 50% would be able to afford these goods at, at you know at the dollar rate, at the market rate. And so the growing cry across the country in this moment is that people are going hungry. You hear it on the streets at protests. It's you know it's led on on newscasts. It's everywhere, and we're seeing it. We're seeing riots in the streets, and we're seeing fights in supermarkets over subsidized goods. And it often feels like we're stuck in a closed loop in Lebanon, uh, where we can't move forward because history seems to be busy repeating itself. Um, and it's it's a somber topic, but but I am very happy to have uh, on the podcast this week. Uh, Christian Total, who is the head of the history department at the U University Saint Joseph, and he is also uh, an author of several books, including a book on the history of Lebanon's Great Famine from 1914 to 1918. He writes mainly in French, and the name of the book is Le Peuple Libanais dans la Tourmente, 1914 to 1918. We we are we are 
very excited to have you on, Christian, to to speak about this topic, even though, as I said, it is a somber one. Um, how are you doing today? Thank you, Taimur. I am trying to be fine. The situation in Lebanon is extremely difficult, so we are trying to be okay, even though it's extremely difficult to to feel good these days but uh, we keep hope and we keep uh, thinking about our situation yeah definitely i think a lot of people feel the same way um and and you know this this week we're going to talk about a period of the the country's history that is quite ill understood it's it's barely taught uh, from what i understand and and in many ways was all but forgotten until recently uh you know because of the situation in the country and the fact that people are talking about going hungry again and so lebanon's great famine uh was this you know this period of uh, what that spans between 1914 and 1918 where we saw massive death massive destruction emigration really changed the the face of the country and and that's what i'd like to get into with you uh now and and if we could start off by by placing the famine in its historical context uh, you know what, what? What was the situation in this region at the time? Uh, what was taking place in the area we now call Lebanon, even before the First World War, uh, when when the when the famine happened? Uh, yeah, let's let's first think about uh, as you as you ask, like let's think about what was happening in the region and in Lebanon mainly before World War One. So maybe the easiest thing with is to go back like fifty years earlier. And uh, you, we can see that, like, let's say, almost since 1848, uh, Beirut had begun to expand its walls and uh, the population of Beirut was increasing and it became around 15,000 people. This happened just after and during and after the civil wars in the mountain. Uh, you know, what we call the, the massacres of Christians by Druze in 1860. So it was like a civil war at, at that time. And this increased Beirut's population because Christians, uh, like uh, Christian refugees, arrived in large uh, numbers to the coast. Let's say right. also that in uh, 1888, Beirut became the capital of the separate province, like what we call uh, Wilaya. Uh, and uh, Beirut became like a very important city at that time. So first I told you that the population of the city was increasing and then I tell you that uh, Beirut became a capital in 1888. The port of Beirut uh, is built at that time, a very important port, one of the most modern ones at that time. And the population of the city became almost 120,000 people by the end of the 19th century. And this was, let's say, uh, more or less a positive time for uh, Lebanon. Uh, hospitals were uh, created, pharmacies were opening. We, we count almost 25 pharmacies opened uh, in the last decade of the 19th, far in, in, of, of the 19th century, which is a, a very large uh, number at that time, you know. The, many universities, but we can cite the, the two main ones in the capital, the Syrian Protestant College that became AUB later and the University St. Joseph opened by the Jesuits at that time. The German Hospital in 1884, the St. George Hospital in 1885, the Hôpital du Sacré-Cœur uh, that was made by the Lazarus priests, uh, the Asfuriye Hospital known in Lebanon as Asfuriye, which is really the what we call the psychiatric hospital. It was the Switzer, the, the Swiss missionnaire uh, who did it. The American hospital just close uh, near the, the, the Syrian Protestant College, which is known today as the American hospital. 
So say it was more or less a good time, even though the numbers show that by that time, at the end of the 19th century, almost 10,000 persons were uh, leaving uh, the, the region every year. And uh, like it was almost 1% or 1.5% of the population by that time. And they were uh, just uh, leaving to go to, to the immigration. So they were uh, uh, going to Europe and mainly to Latin America. So we had we were already seeing emigration from Mount Lebanon and and Beirut before the onset of the First World War, um, and and I think it was sort of economic factors driving that. Uh, then what what happens when the first First World War is initiated, and and how do we sort of enter that period where where the country starts uh, starts in a way I mean falling apart, or it wasn't the country at uh, at that point was it? It was just several wilayas that uh, that started being impacted by by this war. So yeah, we we can say as you as you just said that immigration was not something that starting during World War One. It was happening before, but it it increased a lot during the war. Uh, what happened is that uh, when First World War raged across Europe and beyond, of course, uh, Lebanon was part of the Ottoman Empire, and even if it was kind of autonomous uh, region, but it was part of the Ottoman Empire. And when the Ottoman forces joined uh, Germany, the German Empire, uh, in this war, the Allies uh, enforced a blockade of the entire coast, eastern uh, coast of the Mediterranean, which includes Syria, Lebanon, and the part of Palestine. And it was a kind of effort to cut the supplies to the Ottomans. And in return, you know, uh, Ottomans uh, did a blockade also, but it was uh, not a maritime one, but um, a land one, blocus terrestre. And they, uh, it was introduced uh, by uh, Jamal Pasha, who was at that time the commander uh, of the Turkish forces in Syria. And uh, this is how cereals and uh, wheat were prevented from entering Mount Lebanon. And uh, this is how it started, let's say. We can say that as of 1915, hunger touches Lebanon and slowly it becomes a famine. So can I ask, uh, what was the main motive, like politically, from the Ottoman side? Because we understood from the Allied side. Um, but just to elaborate a bit more on the politics uh, behind it. Well, there there was many reasons for the Ottomans to to put a blockade on on Mount Lebanon. First and the most important one is that they need the food and the supply for their own army. So they prefer to 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 take to confiscate all this food, all this uh, supplies of, uh, for the good of their own uh, soldiers. And uh, second, even if it's not always said, but it's kind of known, it was like a punishment. You know. Uh, the, the, the population living in Mount Lebanon during this time was uh, more uh, like the population was, was, was close to France and to the French feeling, let's say, during this war. Like people had enough with 400 years of Ottoman occupation. And uh, when World War I started, a lot of people in Mount Lebanon were hoping, were silently hoping that maybe something would change if uh, Ottomans uh, will lose this war. So it was kind of a punishment and we can see this through the archives uh, that uh, I was working on in the Jesuits uh, archives at the St. Joseph University. Uh, many of officials, many officers, many Ottoman officers, when they used to confiscate 
like the University of St. Joseph uh, buildings or uh, the schools that were owned uh, by the, the French missions at that time, they used to say, and this is written, they used to, to say uh, to the population there, we do this to punish you because you are spies and because you work for France and because you are doing everything you can uh, so Ottomans will lose this war. So you can see that uh, here we have the, pol- uh, the, the politics from one side and also uh, the, the, the needs, the simple needs of a very big army, Ottoman army, that was hungry also. So they confiscated food. And then beyond that political sphere, there's also a lot of blame that's put on, for example, locusts, Jarad, Bel Arabi, and also... Uh, climactic factors. There was talk of, you know, an extremely sort of uh, dry uh, winter with crops not uh, not getting what they needed. And then there was also the role of traders and merchants and middlemen in, uh, you know, during that time who were accused of, of hoarding goods and preventing it from getting to the population. So I wonder, you know, to what extent did those factors pl- play a role in, in leading to the famine and, and in fact prolonging it? Well, Taymour, the, the Great Famine was a destructive result of a political and environmental factor. Uh, let's try to resume it uh, to, to the combination of three main factors. First, the severe famine because of the blockades. Uh, second, the grasshoppers, the locusts or the grasshoppers. Um, we, we, we can mention this in a moment. Uh, like, you know, in um, the archives I worked on say that in April 1915, uh, huge dark clouds, hordes of, of locusts, were uh, were descending uh, to feed on plants, whether green or dry, and it comes from here the Lebanese expression "l'akhdar wal-yabis. And third, the main reason was uh, also the the Lebanese themselves. You know, uh, like it's not something that we would like to say, but uh, at that time, uh, traders uh, made profit, and a lot of people made the profit. Uh, and this uh, reminds me a little bit of the scenes of people uh, rushing into supermarkets uh, in these days to buy financed oil and food product. Uh, like I'm sure that you are seeing uh, the very bad uh, and sad images that uh, we see on social media about what's happening in Lebanon today. It's something that reminds us of what happened 100 years ago. And it is important to mention, like when you mentioned the blockade, we should not forget that we, we are talking about two blockades. The first one was made by the Allies on the, the coast. And the second one, the, the most important one, was made by the Ottomans. And the responsibility here is for the Ottomans and what happened uh, in Mount Lebanon, because they were the occupying forces. You know, by, by international law, whatever happens in the land occupied is the responsibility of the occupying forces. So what happened in Lebanon is the, the direct responsibility of Ottomans. But also we cannot ignore what nature did and what the Allies did and also what part of the Lebanese uh, did by that time. And the part of the Lebanese doing this, I mean, I remember when I was researching a story, there was talk of, you know, putting uh, dirt and sawdust and all kinds of material in the 
in the wheat to make it way more. They were talking about bread going black. I'm just wondering what the historical record tells us about what actually, you know, Lebanese did, did, to, did to each other. Um, and, you know, especially, I'm, I'm sure it was a small group of, of Lebanese, right? Much like we see today. What does the historical record uh, tell us about that? Uh, Taymour, you did an excellent uh, report about Bjerin a few weeks ago that we read and that shows uh, what happened in some villages. And uh, the archives also say why it happened. Well, we said it already. The Ottomans were responsible. The nature was responsible. But let's not hide. We have to face things. Uh, History should be responsible and we should say what we really know about it. The archives tell us that uh, some uh, Lebanese traders, uh, yes, were doing things that were completely illegal and uh, not even moral. You mentioned as example, like putting some uh, stuff in the food, which was not part of the food itself, and trying to sell it 10 times more expensive. We we, we, we even have examples in the archives uh, that uh, some people sold, you know, houses and lands for uh, two or three uh, bags of, of food or uh, wheat or uh, uh, farine. I don't know how you say it in English. Flour. So, yeah, flour, exactly. Thank you. So uh, it happened. It happened. And it is happening today. When you go to pharmacies today and you want a medicine, they tell you, we don't have it. And you, you deeply know that they have it. But they are just waiting till next day because next day the dollar would have increased and they can sell it more expensive. And when you go to supermarket, it's the same when you want to buy the finance uh, oil or the cleaning supplies. And we, we have seen scenes of customers shouting and clashing with each other. And uh, they just don't want to sell it today because they know that in two days it will be more expensive so they can sell it for more. And sadly, this is also the responsibility of uh, the local population. But the only difference is that by that time, uh, during World War I, the, the management was the responsibility of Ottomans, while today the management is the responsibility of Lebanese. So today we are even more responsible of what, uh, what is happening, because we can change it, but we are not changing it. So I, I think you raise a very interesting point because in the past, yes, there was this locust plague, there was the Ottomans, there was the naval blockade. But today in Lebanon, we don't have those circumstances, right? I mean, we're not suffering from massive crop failure. There's no locust plague and, and there is no real siege on the country, although some you know politi- po- politicians like to paint this idea that there is a siege. But practically, there is no siege on the country. But what we do have is basically massive mismanagement and and we and we have a situation where, as you pointed out, there are these historical parallels. I, I want to sort of get get to the numbers here because it, it is important to sort of quantify what happened. And there is a wide range uh, on the numbers of what what occurred during during uh, the, you know the famine of how many people died and how many people left. Can you go into that a bit? What what do we know about the effect of this uh, this famine on the country quantitatively? Let's just go back one minute uh, to what you were mentioning because it's very interesting. Uh, a lot of people are comparing what happened, what is happening today, to what happened 100 years almost ago. In 1915-16, we we had the, the typhus and the cholera, and uh, today we have the COVID. <laughs> so it's kind of a comparison that can be done. 
1915 and 16, uh, we had uh, the Ottomans uh, who were uh, giving us difficult times, let's say. And today, we can say that we have um, difficult neighbors also, close neighbors and uh, less close neighbors. Like when we mentioned the Iranian policies and the Saudis policies and what's happening between uh, USA from one side and the Russians on the other side and all this pressure that is put on the Middle East and on in, and on Lebanon in particular also would remind us of the context, the historical context of the pressure and of the tensions that we, we were going through during uh, the First World War. And the third uh, comparison that can be done, uh, Taimur, also is the, the same bad uh, mismanagement spirit that was uh, existing in between 1915 and 1918. We sadly see it the same today. And I think this is uh, somehow part of the Lebanese culture. I hope it will change one day. So we can, we can of course, do these uh, parallels, let's say, between, between yesterday and today. But it will not be enough. So, of course, it needs more anal analysis and, and, and more comprehension. Uh, going back to the numbers, since you were asking me about the numbers, let's just know that at, at this time, in the beginning of the century, the population of what we call Lebanon, because it was not Lebanon yet, but like the Mount Lebanon, was estimated to at about 400,000 people. And... Um, the American Red Cross mentioned later in the archives of the American Red Cross that the death toll was about 200,000 people. What we, anyway, what we know is that this is the highest death toll by population of the First World War. Of course, it was kind of forgotten and also kind of not mentioned a lot because comparing to what happened to the Armenian population through the Armenian genocide by that time, you know, when you die by the sword, it's much more uh, t terrible and horrible than when you die of hunger. Because when you die of hunger, you die silently and no one knows and no one sees this. So let's say that uh, we don't have uh, very, very precise numbers, but we estimate the range of death toll during World War One in Lebanon between 100,000 people and 200,000 people. Uh, in Mount Lebanon alone, of, of course. Um, the Jesuits' uh, archives are interesting ones because they mention a number that is 180,000 people. The Maronite archives, of course, they increase the number and it, it can reach uh, 250,000 people. When you go to the Ottoman archives, they mention 80,000 people only. The French wow. archives, yeah, and the French archives uh, say b between 100 and 200,000 people. So, even if we go to the to the lowest uh, number, which is the Ottoman one, 80,000 people is enough to say that this was a crime of war. Uh, we cannot use the word genocide because using the term genocide needs some laws and some uh, in uh, jurisdiction special. We cannot talk of a genocide in this case, but you can talk of crime of war, crime de guerre. And uh, what is sure is that almost one-third of the population of Mount Lebanon died from the Great Famine. 
Um, and and you've, you've spoken about the number of people who died. What about the number of people who emigrated both, uh, you know, during the war and, and after? Because it seems to be quite a large number. And, you know, traditionally, when you speak about Lebanese emigration, when people speak about Lebanese emigration, including politicians in this country, they paint it in this sort of neo-Phoenician light that it was Lebanese who left, you know, seeking prosperity and they became so successful. And it was almost a choice. But from from my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems that most Lebanese left the country because they felt that they had no choice and they were pushed out in a way by, by the circumstances. So, Taimur, maybe the first comparison that can be done about uh, yesterday and today is also the people leaving the country. We know that uh, today uh, a huge number of, of young uh, students are uh, going to the embassies trying to get visas and to leave Lebanon because... Uh, even if you get the best diploma today and uh, you start working, your salary will turn around $100 or $200 in, in the best case. And uh, going back to what happened uh, during World War One, it was uh, the same. We know that before the war, every year a lot of people used to leave. And during the war, we don't have exact numbers. But after the war, a lot of people left. So the, the numbers are not easy to get because... Uh, the Maronites give numbers that are very different from uh, from the other sources that we have. But uh, what is sure is that almost also, almost one third of the population left. So w- if you, we want to simplify things, you can say one third died, one third stayed and one, one third left. But I take it with precautions because I'm not sh- I cannot confirm this number by archives that we have. But this is mainly what we know. And we know it from the people abroad. It means we know it from the diaspora who 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 give us these numbers according to what they collected uh, at the beginning of the century. And this is the time when a lot of Lebanese were going to uh, South America, wasn't it? Because like there is a whole generation of Lebanese people who went to South America. Yeah, Nizar, I I, I had the chance to to visit Mexico three years ago, and uh, I've met with a lot of uh, Lebanese people uh, from Mexico and uh, I was uh, kind of astonished by the numbers of people who came to talk to me and they mentioned that they know nothing about Lebanon they they know that their uh, their ancestors left Lebanon during World War 1 and what was very uh, interesting for me is the fact that they don't even have Lebanese named families anymore like they have typical uh, Mexican or Latin American family names and when you ask them about it, they have an explanation. At the beginning uh, uh, of the century, when they left, the, before the war, during the war, or after the war, uh, World War One, I, I mean, when they arrived to Latin America, most of them changed their family names because they 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 hoped they were hoping that the it will be easier for them and for their kids to have names that don't show that they come from the Arab world, or that they could be as, uh, assimilated to Turcos. All, all, all the Lebanese who, who went to Latin America, they they used to be called the Turcos. Even if they were Lebanese or Syrians, they were called the Turcos. And being a Turcos uh, at the beginning of the century in Latin America was a bad thing. It was not uh, something easy to carry as a, 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 as a name. <laughs> It was badly seen, you know, and uh, this is why most of them have changed their family name. But the, the, the fun part of this is that they have chosen family names that uh, described their, their Lebanese family names. 
And we have many examples uh, that I cannot uh, give you now, but I, we have many examples uh, that we had through studies of uh, Mexican uh, families who have uh, family names that were just a translation of Lebanese family names. Oh, it would be super interesting to, to have an example of that. Do you, do you by any chance? Well, I can, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I can just give you now two or three examples because I have seen this and I have worked on it. Uh, the Khouri family who became the Padre family. And also uh, we have a family name from uh, Al-Batroun and Al-Kura uh, area, which is Al-Mkish family. Uh, and when they when they arrived to, to Latin America, they were immediately called uh, Sirio. So it's, it, they became the Sirio family because they, they look serious. You know, it's just the translation of Mkish is someone who looks serious. And I have seen a lot of these uh, examples that maybe we can talk about in another uh, podcast one day. I would be able to prepare in advance uh, these uh, comparative families and uh, we can maybe talk about it. That's great. No, th thanks so much. And and I do want to get to the present day, but just a last question here on, on the famine, because when you speak about a third of the population dying and a third of the population leaving. I wonder what effect does that have on the national psyche, on the village, on the family, you know, on on these locuses of 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 life, of everyday life. I mean, when you've seen and we have records of people walking through streets where they're just filled with dead bodies, you have the sound of dying people in the streets at night in Beirut. They, there's descriptions of people closing their windows at night so they could sleep because the sound of dying people was so loud. What was the effect of the national psyche? And that maybe brings us uh, you know, a bit closer to today. I mean, what, what happens to a people and to a country when two-thirds leave either via death or emigration? Your, your question, Taimur, leads me to, to tell you about what wrote the Turkish feminist uh, author, uh, Halida Adib, in her memoirs. She, she mentioned that the nights of Beirut were atrocious. Uh, you could hear uh, people and kids in the street uh, screaming, Jo'an, Jo'an, of course, which means I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Also, uh, to fit Yusuf Awad in his famous uh, book, Al-Ghaif, tells us about child screaming and shouting for about the fact that they were hungry. A lot of American sources also that we have at the Jesuit archives mention uh, some employees of the AUB uh, and some employees of other institutions in Lebanon, uh, like professors or the nurses or doctors that were working in Lebanon at that time. They mentioned horrible scenes of people screaming and shouting in the streets. Of course, this is not easy to live and this is not easy to remember. So this is why a lot of people who went through these difficulties wanted to forget this after the war. And I, as I told you, uh, it was told to me by some Lebanese uh, I've met in Mexico. They told us that uh, they know that when their, their grandparents or their ancestors came to Latin America, they had one target in mind. First, never tell the kids about what happened. And second, try to make it inclusive uh, and easy uh, way of inclusively having those Lebanese kids into Mexican schools or Argentinian schools. I'm sorry because my English will not help me to say what I really want to say. But what I'm trying to say is that the Lebanese who went there 
to Latin America were trying to hide what happened for two reasons. First, they don't want to talk about it to their kids because it's difficult to, to tell. You know, it's not easy to tell that uh, you saw your family dying of hunger. And it's not easy to tell that you did bad things during uh, a time because you needed to feed your family. And second, because they wanted this uh, new generation of Lebanese living abroad to be able to go uh, to schools and universities normally without having to carry this this horrible uh, souvenir. So they had to change names and they had to hide this reality. And is that perhaps then why we go so long in Lebanon without having a memorial to the famine? Uh, this happens between 1914 and 1918. And and, and you, you were, I believe, rather than just being part of the, the first memorial, you were one of the people who came up with creating a memorial to, to the famine in Lebanon uh, not too long ago. I mean, we're talking about five or six years. And so can you just talk a bit about this memorial and, and why did it take so long? What, why, you know, did we go through, is it is it because we went through, you know, recurring conflicts? Uh, is it because people wanted to forget? Uh, and what does it mean to have, to have a memorial or to not have a memorial? Taimur, this needs a lot of calm and, and a lot of analysis and a lot of university studies to be able to understand why uh, the Lebanese society uh, lives in a big amnesia somehow. You know, half of the Lebanese population forgot that we were under Israeli occupation for 25 years almost. The other half of the Lebanese people forgot that we went through Syrian occupation also for almost uh, 20 years or more. When you ask the Lebanese uh, today, the young Lebanese today, they know nothing about Lebanese civil war. They don't want to hear about it. And um, I don't want to go through politics, but one of the worst things that we can hear in the streets today is the slogan, Kellon Yani Kellon, because this means that you don't want to know anything about what happened and you just want to turn the page and say everything that happened was bad. But this is not a good thing because, on the contrary, you have to go through every single detail of what happened to be able to understand who was bad and who was less bad and who could have been uh, better. And, you know, I, I don't know if you understand what I mean, but the, the, the easiest thing to do is to say that all the past was bad. Everything is bad. And I don't want to talk about it. And this is what is happening. And this is what happened after World War One. We said that we don't want to talk about what happened. And then we stopped talking about it. And we forgot. And uh, 100 years later, in 2014, when I started preparing an exhibition and a book about, about World War I, I noticed that we have no memorial in Lebanon for the people who died from the famine. And like, can you imagine almost 200,000 people died and we have not even one memorial in the whole country for this event? So yes, we started working on it and with uh, the help of... Uh, so it was mainly my idea, and then uh, I had to go into collaboration uh, with uh, Mr. Ramsey Tufik Salame and the Banque du Liban, and also we worked with the municipality of Beirut. We organized the committee, we started thinking about what could be the memorial. The University of St. Joseph was hosting this, uh, the whole idea, and uh, finally we, we were able to work with the artist, young artist Yazan Halwani, and uh, we got the memorial that is uh, today just facing the French embassy and just close to the University of St. Joseph on Damascus uh, Street, Rue de Damas. When you go from Sodico Square to the Museum of Beirut, you can see this monument, but it's still covered because we still did not have the authorization to inaugurate the monument.
and uh, probably will ask me why because of political reasons you know uh, i cannot go into this uh, now in details but uh, every lebanese uh, political party wanted to to take this event for uh, for his side and this made complications and we ended up not even inaugurating the monument and anyway, even if uh, I have been contacted recently by uh, many uh, officials mentioning that they finally get an agreement to, to open the monument, to, to make it like visible to people, uh, I don't think it's the right time. You know, people are fighting in supermarkets for food. Can you imagine inaugurating a monument for famine today? What, uh, what, an, what a bad idea it would be and how humiliating for the Lebanese uh, people of today to tell them that while you are hungry, we are inaugurating a monument for famine. So I think that um, my work, sadly, my, my, my whole project was supposed to be inaugurated in 2016. The whole thing was postponed because of the political uh, uh, events and context. And uh, today, I think it's not the good time. So I will have to wait more, maybe two or three years more. In, so we can maybe one day see the Place de la Famine honoring the, the 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 victims of world war one yeah i mean i i'd say we, we hope for that too um I, I believe when i spoke to you about this last you said you know these these people have these victims have been sort of left uh, without any remembrance for over a hundred years so a few more years uh, is is not too much for them in a way and uh, definitely it seems that in the situation we are in today it would be very tone deaf to inaugurate a memorial to the famine when when people are speaking about famine uh, once again. Um, yeah, Taymour, exactly. Mm-hmm. And and I, I'll be honest with you, I have fears because uh, can you just imagine we say tomorrow afternoon we will inaugurate a monument for famine and uh, like the president or the prime minister will come to to cut the the, the ribbon and 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 take the pictures. I'm afraid that the the the, the protesters will 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 leave the supermarkets where they are fighting now and they will come to destroy the the, the monument uh, to to make some some vandalism and i would understand this because it it will be even even more insulting to to tell to the lebanese people that uh, while you are hungry we inaugur- we inaugurate a monument for famine so sadly it's a bad timing for me for for the project for the whole memorial it was supposed to to be done earlier it hasn't been done so now it's not the right moment right i mean what place is there for history in a country where history is repeating itself yeah history kind of repeats itself but uh, we live and uh, we think and we act so we can try uh, to 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 think ahead of time about uh, these things uh, we can try to avoid the the future catastrophes if we just look at the history books uh, okay, we have a problem in Lebanon. We don't have one history book for everyone. You know, every school has its own history book. So this is a problem on one way. But even on the other way, it's not that difficult to look at what's happening today and to imagine what will happen tomorrow. Like, um, you, you know, I, I don't want to go into politics, but when, when you see that the, the president and the prime minister had to meet 18 times until now they have not decided uh, who are the the 15 or the 20 names they want to put on the list to form a government like uh, it's make it i become crazy when when i hear this like if you go to to all the lebanese universities don't you have uh, good professors don't you have good doctors don't you have good engineers don't you have good historians good journalists like they they they, they really cannot find 20 good people that fit that job 
I cannot believe it because when Lebanese go abroad, they become excellent and they take the best the, the best positions. Christian, we, we were so happy to have you on. We, we sadly have to wrap up, although I think we could speak for several hours about this topic. And, and I think that I speak for everyone at the, the Lebanese Politics Podcast when we say we'd love to have you back on again. Uh, it's a very somber topic to speak about, but incredibly interesting. And, and really, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you, Taimur. Thank you, Susan and Nizar, for uh, being uh, here also uh, for helping uh, to prepare this uh, podcast and uh, thank you for everyone who would listen and uh, i would like to end on a positive note if you allow me uh, after world war one and the great famine we saw uh, the state of greater lebanon so it was a positive uh, start for um, for for lebanon and i hope that uh, today uh, I hope that history will repeat itself and after all the crises and uh, the difficulties that we are going through today, we will have also another great uh, Lebanon that will uh, come from um, from all the bad things that are happening now. Thank you for coming, Christian. Uh, it's really enlightening to... to uh to always like uh, to listen to what happened before and uh, and how it how it connects to today and um I'm 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 pretty excited to be uh, planning future episodes with the team about uh, about Lebanon's history uh, that's one of my favorite things to do on the podcast but also I think uh, sometimes uh, teaching history is better than analyzing or over analyzing on the present moment uh, because of these similarities and um, the various interests and forces that are at play. Uh, so thank you so much, Christian, for coming. Uh, we'll be back with another podcast, another episode uh, next week. Me and Ben will be on that episode. And uh, until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Taymur Azhari. I am Christian Tautel. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.